Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 14, but really we're going to, we're going to try and cover the entire Bible on the subject of giving. I know, uh, buckle in, uh, but I am nevertheless really excited. Your handouts are going to be key. Make sure if you don't have um, your bulletin that you have them or you just are ready to write really, really fast today. So, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20 is our scripture reading this morning for uh, this sermon on giving. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Um, First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word this morning, and we ask for your help as we open the scriptures. Would you, Lord, just help us to understand what it means for your people to honor you and to demonstrate thanksgiving to you through their giving. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Everyone's favorite sermon is a sermon on giving, right? Every preacher's favorite sermon to preach is a sermon on giving. I say that in jest, but in all reality, I just want you to know I'm very grateful for what the Lord has done in my own heart, in my life this week, in my time of study. And I, I'm prepared to preach expectantly for what He is going to do in the lives of our people here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Uh, so towards that end, let's begin. The statistics vary just a little bit. I'm not usually a, a stats guy, but, but just as a starting place, on average, this is actually 2019, so this is even pre-pandemic, uh, on average, uh, evangelical Protestants in the United States give around 3% of their income to the church. That number is actually down from nearly 6%, 5.98% in 1968. Now, conversations about our giving habits are most likely going to be directly impacted by our understanding of the law, specifically the Old Testament tithe law. That's how most of us have come to understand the idea of giving if we grew up in a church. For example, if, if the tithe law is binding on us as a church, then these numbers indicate the majority of Christians are walking in continuous, unrepentant disobedience. Right? We're, we're not giving anywhere near the, if we believe in the tithe law, commanded 10% of our income. On the other hand, if you don't believe the, the commandment is binding on Christians today, well, then what? What does that 3% tell us, if anything? What do we believe about giving? If we're not bound by the tithe law in the Old Testament, how do we then conceive of our giving? Why do we do it? Do we even have to do it? These questions are significant, as we will see. But our goal this morning is to allow the teaching of God's Word to renew our minds as it is each and every Sunday, but specifically this week in regards to our giving, so that it would stir up our hearts and that we would give by faith and that our stewardship might actually be worship. 
So let's begin at the beginning. Number one, giving was established at the beginning. Giving, the concept of giving, was established at the beginning. It is put on Adam and Eve, those who were made in the image of God, that they are to give. Or to put it another way, you and I were created in a reciprocal relationship with God. We were created to receive all things from God and to return thanksgiving and honor to God. We were created to receive all things from God and to return thanksgiving and honor to God. This is all throughout the Bible. That's the first sub-point there uh, in, your, in your notes. We were created to receive all things from God and to return thanksgiving and honor to God. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, you, you find this. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. See, God has made himself known since the very beginning through that which he created, so that, verse 20 says, they are without excuse, because although they, did, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So according to that text, what should have been the response? It should have been honor and thanksgiving. Mankind was created with an innate sense of divinity. They, they knew God, and in the setting that God created them, they heard clearly creation declare his glory. God, as Paul told the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, said this, He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So again, you see this reciprocal relationship where people who were created in the image and likeness of God, they receive all things from him, breath, life, everything. And, and what was God to receive in return? Honor, thanksgiving. Let me fill that in because I'm, I'm not sure how you define honor, but, but I'm using it how I believe the scriptures are using it. God gives all things, and for our part, we are to, get this, it's in your notes, honor him. That is, we are to acknowledge him as the giver of every good gift. That's what it means to honor the Lord. It's to acknowledge him as the one who withholds no good thing from his people. To acknowledge him as the rightful ruler of the universe who deserves our unfailing allegiance. That's what it means to honor God. And as such, we are to give him thanks. Now, admittedly, we don't see this explicitly stated in the creation narrative. Even so, we know that it's a consequence of the teaching of the rest of the Bible to see that Adam, in his role as prophet, priest, and king of the garden, was to honor God and offer him thanksgiving. Adam was to rejoice in the beauty, truth, and love of his maker. And thank offerings would have been an appropriate and reasonable act of worship. In Genesis 4, we see the first example of offering, giving to God. And the narrative there is instructive. We know what happens in Genesis 4. What do we see there? 
we see that thankfulness is demonstrated by offering back a portion of what he has given to us. Thankfulness is demonstrated by offering back a portion of what he has given to us. From the beginning, the children of Adam knew it was right to bring God gifts. From the very outset, whether they knew this innately or whether Adam instructed them, it's impossible to say with certainty, but it seems clear that both Cain and Abel, you know the story, understood that there is an expectation, not an obligation, to give back to the Lord a portion of what God has provided to people. It's an expectation. This is a, a necessary aspect of honoring and giving thanks, and it, it applies to every human being. It would be true to say that those in Adam, under the covenant of creation, even to this very day, should bring gifts to God. When we give back a portion of what God has given to us, we're declaring that, that we know we've received all things from the Lord. That, that we know that He alone is God. See, given not only honors God by declaring that He alone is the giver of every good gift, but but giving also demonstrates our gratitude. It, it, it is the means by which we demonstrate the thanksgiving that is appropriate given the graciousness and the generosity of our God to us. So honoring and giving thanks, those two should be honor, obvious, but I want to add another here, another aspect of giving that we don't often talk about. And I want you to think about this. Giving also defends our hearts reminding us that we're not independent creatures. Giving defends our hearts, reminding us we are not independent creatures. I don't know if you know this, but I am not the autonomous master of my own universe. Did you know that? Somebody needs to be reminded this morning. <laughs> you are not the autonomous master of your own universe. In fact, that's at the very heart of the lie of the devil spoken to him by him in the garden, isn't it? I am a dependent creature. You are a dependent creature. No matter how hard I work, it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. And we'll see this again later. I want to notice one more lesson from, from, from early stages in Genesis before we move on. And this is kind of the, the crux of Genesis 4. Thankfulness is demonstrated by our giving, yes. But not all giving honors the Lord because not all giving is by faith. Isn't that what we learn from Cain and Abel's story? Not all giving honors the Lord because not all giving is by faith. If you just hear that you're to give and you don't do so with a, with a humble heart filled with faith in the God who has provided you all things, then you have done nothing. Not all giving honors the Lord because not all giving is given by faith. Notice one offering is accepted in Genesis 4 and the other is rejected. And, and there are various explanations as to why this is the case. But, but the reality is the New Testament points to one thing. It points to the condition of the hearts who were given. Those who are giving, it points to the condition of their hearts. So for example, writing about Cain and Abel in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John writes this, Cain, who was of the wicked one, because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Uh, the book of Hebrews explains the difference in Hebrews chapter 11, 4 between the two brothers. By faith, it says, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So friends, this is a critical lesson for us to learn. It's not simply the act of giving a portion back to God. It is, and it has always been, when we talk about giving, a matter of the heart. We see this repeated throughout all of redemptive history. For example, David writes in his great confession repentance uh, psalm of Psalm 51, these words, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Of course, we could go to Samuel and Isaiah and Hosea and others that virtually say the exact same thing. An offering given without faith, without a view of God's holiness, without a recognition of our own sinfulness, without a trust in God's salvation, and real abiding joy and gratitude for the relationship that that gift represents. Without those things, no offering is pleasing to God. It's a matter of the heart. That gift that is given does not honor in and of itself. It's the heart of God's child that honors him as he declares that he's trusting in him. But even so, let's stop and, and, and turn this. Even so, a heart that is truly gripped by the grace of God is a heart that will gladly offer a gift that is pleasing to the Lord. While it is faith, and it's not the offering in itself that honors God and demonstrates gratitude to him, the reality is, friends, hear this, offerings that cost us nothing don't demonstrate that faith. We, we learn of this really through the Old Testament law even, where, where the most costly portions are to be given to the Lord himself. David states it explicitly in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, where he says, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. (laughs) In the New Testament, this truth is illustrated by the story we all know, the story of the widow's mites, the two copper coins in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. The Lord does not say anything about the heart of the widow in that passage, but he does refer to the cost of her offering. Some give a lot more, but it didn't really cost them. The widow's commended because she offered everything. She gave a costly sacrifice. Paul actually makes the same point in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You remember those Macedonians? That's who he uses as a model there. Why? Because their sacrifice revealed a true trust in the Lord, a real understanding of what they had in him. Why? Because they gave out of their poverty. It cost them greatly. So while a large offering without faith does not please the Lord, claiming to have faith while offering nothing or a gift to God that does not really cost you anything, doesn't honor the Lord either. Now that's not a, it's not a hard thing for us to apply in the New Testament church today, is it? Here's what we apply from understanding giving was established at the beginning. It's this, we need to be a people who give generously and give first. That's who we need to be. A people who give generously and give first. The first fruits belong to the Lord. I know I haven't gotten to the tithe yet. We're getting there. But first and foremost, let's recognize, as we see in the scriptures, 
that we are to be a people who declare our allegiance to God, honoring him as the only God, demonstrating our thanksgiving to him, and defending our hearts against the delusion of self-autonomy by giving generously and giving sacrificially. And can I just tell you, I needed to hear this this week. The reality is it's so easy just to get into a rut and and what used to be sacrificial giving is just not anymore. The, The truth is, friends, it should pinch. It has to hurt. It's gotta cost you something. Maybe it costs you a vacation, maybe a toy. There are are so many places that we could pinch without really being pinched that it's crazy. If not, our giving devolves into this. Our giving devolves into the generosity of children who grab the very best for themselves first and then offer what's left over to their siblings. That's not Christian giving We declare we are queens and kings of our own universe if that's what our giving devolves to. We demonstrate not gratitude, but greed and selfishness. Instead of defending our hearts and minds, we tempt them constantly to find their joy and satisfaction in some trinket of false hope or some idol. We need to be a people who give generously and give first even if it cost us something. The Bible's clear. Moving on, I want us to also continue along the path of biblical history now. Giving was set in stone through the patriarchs and Mosaic law. Giving was set in stone through the patriarchs and Mosaic law. This brings us actually to Genesis chapter 14, the, the, the text we read that actually brings us to the introduction of this idea of the tithe. We learn several things from the tithe law as we see it develop in the rest of the Old Testament. But first I want to point out the covenantal setting of the tithe. I know you are probably so tired of hearing me talking about covenants. Um, But I think providentially the Lord has allowed us to do a little bit of background work for the last four weeks on this particular text. The covenantal setting of the tithe. If you look back a little, or you did your reading this week from Genesis 14 to Genesis 13, this is what you read in Genesis 13. It says this, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see. I give to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. What is that? What is that that the Lord just gave to Abram? That's the very promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham, isn't it? Do you notice there? Seed, land, blessing. And then what happens is it's followed by Genesis 14, and there's this battle of five kings versus four kings. And when the dust settles from the great battle, you remember what happened? Uh, Abram takes 318 of his trained men, and he rides after those four kings that just defeated the five kings. And because they, they rode off with all their possessions, including Lot and his family, uh, so he, he rides after them. He takes off with 318. He tracks them down, and he defeats all four kings. Then then the Lord meets Abram and promises, 
Look to your left, right, north, south, east, west. All of it will be given to you and your children will outnumber the dust of the earth. So you've got Abram riding off, defeating kings of the land, riding back with their possessions, and he's met by none other than this man, Melchizedek. Don't miss this. Abram's victory foreshadows the fulfillment of the very promise the Lord just made. This is covenant promise and fulfillment, even if it's only a foreshadowing of the fulfillment. And then the giving of the tithe follows that. So, so Melchizedek, he pronounces the blessing on Abram, acknowledging that the victory belongs to the Lord because the battle belongs to the Lord. He's the one who's delivered your enemies into your hands. Abram both confirming the words of Melchizedek and acknowledging all the possessions he had belonged to the Lord gives him a tithe of all. So you have to see this in its covenantal context as promise, Lord promise, temporary foreshadowing of fulfillment. The covenantal response from the faithful servant Abraham is giving a tenth of those blessings to the Lord. It's a demonstration of his gratitude for the covenant blessing and defending his heart and mind from any misgivings about the source of his salvation. The second mention of the tithe actually occurs down to Genesis chapter 28. You can turn there if you'd like. In Genesis 28, where, where Jacob's fleeing the wrath of his elder brother Esau. Again, what happens? God Most High meets Jacob just before Jacob promises to give a tithe to the Lord. And what's interesting is in Genesis chapter 28, you actually find the exact same language that God used with Abraham in Genesis 13. Right before Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek in Genesis 14. You following so far? No? <laughs> you may go back over it? It's going to be longer. All right, no, okay. So, so listen, look at Genesis 28. Let's just put our eyes on it. Verse 14. See if this promise rings a bell. To Jacob, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Land seed blessing. Do you see it? The exact same language he used with Abraham. This is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant being given to Jacob, not Esau. And Jacob responds to the promise with these words. In Genesis 28, he says, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Same response we saw from Abraham. We now see it in Jacob in regards to the promise of the covenant. Same elements as before. God makes a promise and the response to that promise is to give him a portion. A tithe specifically of the promised blessing back to the Lord. Now, after the Lord begins to fulfill the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he sets it at stone at Mount Sinai in the law. You following the progression? We keep moving down to redemptive history in the Old Testament. So what's happening at Mount Sinai? Well, it, it's the immediate physical fulfillment of the promise of the covenant with Abraham. Moses tells them on the plains of Moab, Look, you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. 
You are about to go in and take possession of the land to the east, the west, the north, and the south of all the land that your God has promised to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's to be their response to that covenant? Well, you'd find it in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 34, Numbers 18, verses 21 through 28, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 24. It's to be a tithe. If you want those texts later, just text me. I'll give them to you. Israel is the recipient of the initial fulfillment of the promise of the covenant. So the tithe is a blessing that is good and necessary as a response foreshadowed by Abraham, promised by Jacob, and finally formalized in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, you guys probably are thinking at this point, what in the world does this sermon have to do with giving? Strangest sermon I've heard on giving ever. Well, here's the reality. It has everything to do with it. It does. Hear me, when the tithe is set in stone in the Mosaic Covenant, we learn several things about this offering. In fact, if you want to go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14, it will probably be helpful to follow along here. Don't you like it when I just start in Genesis? You know every other place is just going right in your Bible. That's it. Deuteronomy chapter 14. It clearly paints this picture. We learn, first of all, that it was an act of worship. The tithe was an act of worship and a reminder of fellowship with God. That's what giving is. It was an act of worship and a reminder of fellowship with God. This is the picture that Deuteronomy 14 clearly paints for us. Hear this. Listen, the tithe was, was not to be sent in the mail by camel to Jerusalem. You actually couldn't just bring your tithe and be on your way. You were to take it to the place that the Lord had chosen. The only place God's people could go to fellowship with him. That's where the tithe was to be taken. Then were they to give it and be on their way? No, this is amazing. You know what they did with their tithe? They were to take it all the way there and eat it. Why? Because it was worship. It was a reminder of fellowship. They were eating the presence of the Lord who provided the food. Being reminded that Yahweh alone was their God and they were Yahweh's people. It was an act of worship and a reminder of fellowship with God. Another thing we see in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is the tithe was sometimes used to care for the needy. The tithe was sometimes used to care for those who are in need. Deuteronomy 14 verse 29 says this, And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. Uh, every th three years, they were to bring out a portion and provide for those who didn't have. And in some ways, the connection between the tithe and the needy makes absolute complete sense, doesn't it? You probably don't even have to explain it. How better to reflect God's own generosity, God's own faithful provision and care than to share it with those who don't have? So the tithe was in one sense legislative, love for thy neighbor. But next we see also that the tithe supported those in full-time ministry. It's the next thing we learn from Deuteronomy 14. The tithe supported those in full-time ministry. Those who had no inheritance in the land, they were to be provided for. We see this from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 27. 
You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. The importance of the tithe is further developed in the life of Israel, of course, as we move on, but, but we really can't unpack it all. <laughs> I would add one more lesson, though. Most of us are familiar with that text in Malachi, one of our favorite texts on giving. There, there the Lord accuses his people of robbing him by refusing to bring the full tithe in. He challenges them by saying, if they tithe, he will bless them. If they don't, he won't. So the one more lesson I want us to learn from all the Old Testament history here is that the blessing of God was contingent on obeying the tithe commandment under the old covenant. Hear that. The blessing of God was contingent on obeying the tithe commandment under the old covenant. There is a direct connection between tithing and receiving the promised physical blessing of God under the old covenant. That's an important caveat to put at the end of that sentence. Okay, so let's summarize Old Testament history and then we'll move on. The tithe is a good and necessary response to the immediate physical fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as it grows into the Mosaic covenant. And the tithe teaches us several things. The tithe is worship. The tithe teaches us we're responsible to help the needy among us. Tithe teaches us we're responsible to provide for those who are full-time ministry. And then the lesson we ended on, the blessing of God was contingent upon obeying the tithe commandment. Now, most of us have probably heard preachers still say, Malachi, test the Lord in this. We've probably still heard them say, pour out your giving and just wait and you will be physically blessed. Is that true? How do you get there? Well, let's move to our last portion here that I want us to examine and I think we will see. Our last portion is this. Giving is exemplified by Jesus Christ. Giving is exemplified by Jesus Christ. So in response to what I just said, are we members of the Mosaic Covenant? No, we're not members of the Mosaic Covenant. Please tell me that you know that, or I will go back to 2 Samuel 7 for four more weeks. No, we're not members of the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, hear me, we are not under the Mosaic Law. The tithe commandment, hear me, is not binding for us for several reasons. First, according to Romans chapter 6 through 8, Galatians chapter 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, and Hebrews 7 and 8 could go on, but according to those texts, we are no longer under the law. We are members of a new covenant, and that includes a new law. We are members of a new covenant, and that includes a new law. Remember, the whole law, as we talked about, whether civil, ceremonial, or moral, whatever category you want to create, it continues, of course, to reprove us, correct us, to train us in righteousness, to instruct us. But, but no part of the Mosaic law, whether ceremonial, civil, or even moral, binds us including the tithe. By the way, let me be clear. When I say bound or binds us, I mean our blessings are not contingent on obeying the 10% tithe commandment. We're not bound to that law. But remember, that tithe was directly related to the covenant. We saw that, right? Clearly. 
What was Abraham promised? Land, seed, blessing. Then immediately he defeated the kings of the land. He has their possession. He gives a tithe. Why? Because it was what the Lord promised, and he gives that as a foreshadowing of the covenant blessing. What about Jacob? He says, when you fulfill your promise, I'll give you a tithe of everything that I have. Same thing in Israel. They'll give 10%. But, but what about us? What about the new covenant Christians? Here's where those who continue to apply the tithe, the 10% Old Testament tithe law, reveal that we're tempted to flatten redemptive history in the covenant in a way that ceases to make sense. What are the promises of the new covenant? Are you promised land? You should say yes and no. That's a trick question. Yes, we're promised the whole earth. But what about right now as we wait? Where are we in redemptive history? Think about it. Here's my point. What's the blessing of the new covenant? The Bible's clear, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. How does that come to us most directly? Adoption, justification, God's love, the fact that he is for us and not against us, that we're no longer under condemnation. The gates of heaven have bust open wide. Hallelujah, amen. We are new creatures awaiting the new creation. We're citizens of heaven awaiting the Savior from there. We're awaiting the redemption of all the earth. We know it to be certain. We are waiting for our glorified bodies, amen. Now give 10% of that. How do you do it? How do you give 10% of that? Here is the problem. You take the tithe from the Old Testament and attempt to apply it directly, you are importing all those promises that don't go with it, that don't belong to us. Friends, you and I, we're not promised houses. In fact, we're promised we may lose our houses. We're not promised money. In fact, we're promised we may have to forfeit it all. We're not even promised life. We may even have to lay that down as well. Okay, so amen, we don't have to give anymore. Well, here's the deal. The tithe is still applicable, as is every bit of Scripture. The tithe is still a reminder that, that all things are from God and everyone should give gifts to God. Cain and Abel teach us that. But here's what we need to know. What compels our hearts to give is not a command of tithe, but a response to the gospel. What compels and directs our hearts to give is not some binding commandment in the Old Testament, but it's a response to the grace of God in the gospel. The basic underlying principles are so diametrically opposed to one another that it is complete foolishness to attempt to apply this tithe law. Why? Because we are people that realize we are waiting on the return of a king who is going to bring us an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, stored up in heaven for us. In fact, you want to know what the Christian example of New Testament giving is? And Christian, we actually find it in the Old Testament. You want, to, you want to apply an Old Testament principle for us in the New Testament? Exodus 35. I know you said you're turning right, but now you've got to go back left. Exodus 35. After God has, has brought his people out to Mount Sinai, get this, they're ready to build the temple. They're coming together ready to build the, the tabernacle. And this is what it says in verse 20 of Exodus 35. It says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And get this, verse 21, this is key. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. 
Then look at verse 22 of Exodus 35. They came, both men and women, as many had a willing heart. In verse 26, and all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom. In chapter 36 of Exodus, verse 2, and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. All the giving and work was a response to the salvation that God had just wrought. The redemption of his people had experienced. And so what's the result? Look at Exodus chapter 36, verse 6. This is mind-blowing. It's nuts. Here's your example of Christian giving. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp. Listen to this. Just nuts. Forget a tithe. Hear this, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. That's Christian giving. Why? Because they had brought so much. They had to say, hold up. That's too much. We've got too much giving now. Stop. We've got all that we need. Friends, could you just imagine what it would be like in our church if we had to say, guys, we're going to take an offering this morning, but, but really, could you just pray over the basket as we pass it? Because frankly, we're, we're just out of room. The bank called us and said, no more. We're having a little trouble deciding what to do with the funds. We need to slow down just a little bit because all of our missionaries are fully funded. All eight pastors, please, Lord, are fully funded. You guys, please, it's too much. You got to stop. That's a picture of Christian giving. Forget the tithe. In fact, isn't that exactly what we see in Acts chapter 4 and 5? Where everyone sold all that they had to take it to the feet of the apostles. It's the exact picture that Paul paints in 2 Corinthians 8 when he holds out the Macedonians who were begging Paul for the opportunity to give even though they had nothing. That's the heart. So what if we are going to be a people who actually worship the Lord through our giving? What do we need? Well, I think it's clear. We need to pray that our hearts are stirred up. Guys, honestly, I could, I could cast you some vision and I might be able to convince you to give 10% for the right thing if I can sell it to you, if I can pitch it, or maybe I can misrepresent the Old Covenant and bind your conscience to an Old Testament command. But it's not Christian giving. Christ is our example. Christ, who according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, became poor so that we might become rich. Not economically, praise be to God, because our inheritance is not here. It's stored up for us in heaven. And it's that basic principle that allows us to live with our hands wide open. Where we really can be crazily, extravagantly, and sacrificially generous. When it comes to giving, it's not a command to tithe, but a response to the gospel that compels God's people to give as an act of worship. Declaring that, that God alone has provided all things, chief among them our salvation. So we look to Christ. So, okay, at what percentage can we say, whew, all right, done. I've reached my 10%. There is no percentage. I know some of you hate that. <laughs> You're probably like me this week and think, no, I need a percentage. This is ridiculous, Cody. You've, you've got to give me something. 
All I can tell you is meet the needs of the church. You have questions about what those needs are on the back of your bulletin? Do you, do you even know who's on the finance team? Do you know? I hope you do. Ask them about the finance of the church. We, we have business meetings every year to talk about this stuff. We're, we're, the questions can come then. Like, come, ask us. We'll be transparent with this. This is all of our money together. We're investing together. Be happy to answer your questions. But the question really is, or the command really is, all I can tell you to do is invest in heaven. That's all I can tell you to do. All I can ask you to do is store up treasures there where neither moth or rust can destroy or thieves can break in and steal. All I can ask you to do is demonstrate your belief in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you give generously. Demonstrating your gratitude for all that we have in Christ, which is everything, counting everything here as rubbish compared to being known by Christ. Let me apply this, and I'm going to do this really quick. Here's your tithe, or tithes, for those of you who are committed to it. I'll give it to you in the most Baptist way possible. I'm going to give you a tithe here, T, to the church. That's the first T, to the church, where you can put temple if you want. That's where giving happens. Just as Abraham gave to Melchizedek, the priest of God most high, just as God's people brought their offerings to the Levites in the temple, just as the church brought their offerings to the feet of the apostles, so also we bring our offerings, not at just some place we'd like to give. We bring it to the church. This is where giving takes place. I, investment. T, temple, or to the church, I, investment. What I mean by that is, this is about the long game. You know, as Christians, we ought to have the long game in view. We're not giving 10% of the blessing we've received in Christ. Why? Because our, our giving is formed by a completely different principle. That principle is all of this doesn't matter. A Christ is going to return and make all things new, bringing with him that inheritance that you and I long for. So invest. We need another T, Thanksgiving. To the church, investment, Thanksgiving. Do I have to say anything else about that? No? Good. We'll move on to H. Help the poor and the pastors. H is help the poor and the pastors. I, I can't offer you anything other than the fact that that's, it's just biblical. I wish we had time to really dig into that. Actually, I don't because it's very uncomfortable. Uh, but it's biblical. Help the poor and the pastors. E, this is important. Everyone. Everyone. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 15, those two places in and of themselves make it really clear that this is not addressed to some segment of the congregation. Each and every person is to be giving sacrificially, everyone, no exceptions. If you like tithes better, you can add the S. Spiritual. It has to be done by faith. And really, the fact that, that even my own heart this week, and I'm sure us, were kind of blah, a giving sermon, that in itself testifies how far off base we are in understanding what giving means biblically. Friends, it's an act of worship. You know what? You really have to start viewing it this way. We get to give. You know, we, we get to come to church. We get to defeat sin in our own lives by the power of the Spirit. 
We get to read God's holy word and his promises to us. We get to pray to the king of the universe. We get to have once dead hearts stirred up into righteousness. Can I ask you a question? How much of this has been I have? I have to. And how much of this has been I get to? Check your hearts. It's an act of worship. You and I, we've been given all things by God, breath, life, and everything. The fact that we have had our eyes open to the truth so that we can actually declare our allegiance to the king of the universe, so that we can actually demonstrate our thanksgiving in this way, so that we can actually defend our hearts by grace from the delusion of autonomy, praise be to God. Offering costly sacrifices by faith. Now here comes the hard part. I need to repent to you. I need to repent to you because I've been convicted under the word this week. I think I've been good. I think I've been righteous in giving my 12% tithe. Get that. Well, I'm super righteous. Not only that, but I've been holding you all and planning all to a, to a percentage. Thinking, well, here's what we should be giving. If I'm giving 10%, if it's a 10% binding law, everybody should be giving 10%. I, I don't agree with that according to, to the Bible. I think we should give to the needs of the church. And in my heart, I've been holding under that binding law of the Old Testament. I've been holding it to you, and I, I repent. My heart has been turned. I studied that this week, and I felt the immediate conviction of the Spirit. It was easy for me to say, you know what, 3%, that's 7% off. These people are in need of discipline. But then my heart was broken in an entirely different way. Because the reality is, if we're giving in response to the gospel, and we even come close to 3%, oh my goodness, what does that tell the world about where our hope is? What does that tell the world about our value in the gospel? What are we demonstrating to the world that we treasure? It breaks my heart. The reality is, it's, it's clear, we, we've, we've struggled a bit. We've struggled a bit in giving. I, I don't know who all gives what, but I know we're not, we're not at 100% of our church members giving monthly. We're not even close. And that breaks my heart, friends. Not because I want to hold you and bind you under some law, because I just want to show you the worthiness of Jesus. Like, we just don't get the gospel. I'm convinced, we, I'm convinced it's, some sort of, it's some sort of abstract idea, but it's really not a reality day in and day out what we've received in Christ. Don't you understand? You can't put a price on hope. You can't put a price on future secured forever in Christ. The value of what we do here is beyond our comprehension. We're placing a value on a gospel where a glorious God has saved wretches and sinners like us for no other reason than He loved us and for His glory. Oh, friends, I got, I got nothing to give you. I, I don't have some sort of pitch and vision for the future that I can sell you, not some sort of capitalistic idea for bettering our business ventures. I simply have one job here is to present you the Christ of the Scriptures. And if you don't see Him as beautiful in value, then my heart breaks. I've been broken this week. But my own heart in this matter, 
My heart just breaks. But yet I'm optimistic. Because I know this. I know God's got great things in store for First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's. I know because he defines greatness. And we're going to do the same thing we've always done. Preach the word, love the people, trust the Lord. God help us. I'm going to call the ushers down. Uh, if you are an usher, would you, would you join us? We're going to give. You know why? Because we get to. You and I, we get to give, church. We get to offer back to the Lord what he's graciously given in us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have this time of giving as we prepare to celebrate the Lord in this. Gracious Father, we look to Christ as our example. Lord, we are aware that if we were to sell everything and give it, it would not be near enough. If we were to lay down our lives, still what have we given in comparison to what we've received in him? Everything that is good, right, holy will be restored a hundredfold because we will have eternal life knowing and being known by you for all eternity. Because we did something? No, because your son lived the life that we could not live and died the death we should have died, receiving upon himself the wrath our sin deserves. Father, would you please help us to respond rightly to this? Specifically, we ask you to cause, you, uh, cause us to be, be a more generous people who give first, who give sacrificially to demonstrate our gratitude, to protect our hearts from the, the illusion of self-autonomy. For you are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.